Good evening, folks. This evening, Friday, April 8th, 2011, happens to be the 700th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable Chicago. 700. And we are so honored to have our friend, Dr. Richard McMurray. Don't call people doctor. There's a lawyer here, he'll sue me for malpractice. <laughs> and he is going, his presentation will be on A Georgian Looks at Sherman. Should be very, very interesting. This meeting comes four days before the 150th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War. Given the history of this organization, it's highly appropriate for us, following the Pledge of Allegiance, to observe a moment of silence in memory of all the brave Americans who lost their lives in the war. Please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge, pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'd like to invite our past president, Tom Trescott, up to the podium. And he's going to share with, him, with us his sesquicentennial moment. Thank you, Ray. I think this month it might be closer to two minutes. Um, uh, as you may well imagine, on this day 150 years ago, April 8, 1861, uh, orders and communiques were hot and heavy coming in and out of and regarding the situation in Charleston Harbor. Robert S. Chu of the State Department met with South Carolina Governor F.W. Pickens and Brigadier General P.G.T. Beauregard, who was commanding the provisional forces of the Confederate States in Charleston, and reported, I am directed by the President of the United States to notify you to expect an attempt we made to supply Fort Sumter with provisions only. And if such attempt be not resisted, no effort to throw in men, arms, or ammunition will be made without further notice or in case of an attack upon the fort. In New York, Lieutenant Edward McCann, aboard the steamer Baltic, received the order from the General-in-Chief that the destination of the 200 recruits embarked on the Baltic is Fort Sumter, and that Captain G.V. Fox, ex-officer of the Navy and a gentleman of high standing, as well as possessed of extraordinary nautical ability, has been charged by high authority in Washington with the command of the expedition. Uh, from Montgomery, Secretary of Confederate Secretary of War L.P. Walker, uh, ordered uh, General Beauregard in Charleston, under no circumstances are you to allow provisions to be sent to Fort Sumter. And he told also uh, Governor Pickens, suggesting that Your Excellency, there's a necessity of calling at once for 3,000 volunteers. A similar request has been addressed to the executive of each of the Confederate states. Beauregard called out for the balance of his contingent of troops of 5,000 men, and what would this be without another ordinance from the state of South Carolina? We, the people of South Carolina, in convention assembled, do ordain and declare that the government of the Confederate States of America is hereby authorized to occupy, use, and hold possession of all forts, navy yards, arsenals, custom houses, and other public sites within the limits of the state, lately in the possessions of the United States of America, together with Fort Sumter. Meanwhile, in Fort Sumter, Major Robert Anderson reported that I have the honor to report that the South Carolinians have since about the noon yesterday have been actively engaged in strengthening their works on Morris Island. 
We'll pray that God will avert the storm which seems impending over us and restore amicable and permanently pacific relations between the states who will stick to the old union and those who have formed another government in the South. And finally, writing from St. Louis to his brother, Senator John Sherman, William T. Sherman said in regard to an open position in the Army, in the Army there is or can be no opening for me unless in case of material increase. Thank you. Just want to remind you that uh, the book raffle is still open for business and all proceeds go to Battlefield Preservation. Enjoy your dinner. While we're finishing our desserts, I have um, some announcements to make on some upcoming local Civil War events. Tomorrow, Saturday, April 9th, at the Kenosha Civil War Museum, a presentation on Illinois regiments by Tom Arlaskis. Next Tuesday, April 12th, McHenry County Roundtable, Ed LaCrosse on Copperheads in Illinois. Next Thursday, April 14th, again at the Kenosha Civil War Museum, Lance Hurtigan and the firing on Fort Sumter. Next Friday, April 15th, the Salt Creek Roundtable, our own Bruce Allardyce will be speaking on the conscription and the Civil War. One week from tomorrow, Saturday, April 16th, at the DuPage County Fairgrounds, the National Civil War Collectors Show. Are we sharing a table with Salt Creek this year again? Yes. Yes. Okay. Tuesday, April 19th, the Lincoln Davis Roundtable. Dr. Mark Laus on Missing Dimensions of the Civil War. Thursday, April 28th, South Suburban Roundtable. Dan Wyatt hosts a discussion on Lincoln Calls on Grant. Roger Bond has an announcement about another upcoming event at the Kenosha Civil War Museum. April 17th, Girardi is doing a presentation at Wilmette. Don't forget that one. Uh, but I have some little blue sheets out for Kenosha's, um, the Civil War Museum in Kenosha. Uh, our old buddy Harold Holzer is gonna be giving a program there on May the 15th. Uh, pick up one of these blue things at the table if you need one or see me. Okay, we're gonna take our 10 minute break and I will remind everyone that the book raffle is open during break. So I will, well, I'll see everyone back here at 7.35. Bob Stoller is gonna tell us about the uh, upcoming Petersburg Appomattox tour. I thought I was talking about Passover. Can I talk about Passover instead? The Cardinals don't have as uh, the Cardinals' record is worse than the Cubs. We'll see how long that lasts. Okay. It's, it's, it's early. Uh, it's very early. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have the shirt for the tour, which this is nondescript, but on the back here is the War of the Railroads. This is the War of the Railroads, and this is the tour shirt for the upcoming tour. We have lots of room for those of you who are wavering. We you would be welcome to come. However. Um, 
things look very good. I've talked to the caterers, I've talked to all these people, and there's always somebody in the group, though, who puts a fly in the ointment, and that honor today goes to Larry Hewitt. Because what happens if the Republicans and Democrats don't solve the crisis? Ed Bars will be talking outside of Petersburg for three days, Petersburg Battlefield for three days. So we will do it all, hopefully it will be over by then so we can go into the park, see the site of the crater, and uh, see the various battlefields. Or we, in the alternative, we will be spending that much more time at the state battlefield parks, because I think they'll still be running. In any event, if you do want to go on the tour, there's still room for you, and we would appreciate you coming. Thank you. Brian Sider is going to talk a little bit about the 2012 tour. Uh, hi, good evening. I just wanted to make a quick mention. Uh, I wanted to thank everyone who's already contributed, but we're next year we're going to go back west to uh, Chickamauga and Chattanooga for the 2012 tour in May. Um, what we're doing is two buses. If you can, uh, ahead of time, if you'd like, you can send your check-in for $100, either bring it to the meeting or send it to me um, so we can get the money together for the upcoming tour. We've got a couple of interesting things we have not done from the last tour that we went in 96. Uh, we're going to do the Southern Bell Riverboat. We're going to go upstream, um, kind of covering Sherman, and we're going to go downstream for Browns Ferry and Lookout Mountain. So that's a couple of things we're going to do. If anyone has any questions on the tour, please ask me. And just a, a final note, thanks to everyone that's already contributed to the uh, Ed Bars Preservation Award for the upcoming tour on Bob's tour here. We're having uh, two checks that that's uh, up, up to Ed to the two battlefields he wants to have us write checks to in his name for battlefield preservation. So we're still taking money for that um, now at the meeting or in the next few weeks. And thanks everyone who's already contributed. Thank you. Donna Tui is, is going to introduce guests and new members. Eleven guests. Bob Gibson brought his wife, Michaela. Please stand up, Michaela, or wave. Mm -hmm. and plus two more. Dave Strom and Linda Strom. <laughs> Bob brings more guests than anyone else. Uh, Ray's guest is Pat Degnan. Pat, where are you? And guests of Donnie Case and Larry Hewitt. We have three Lewises, Ed, Marlene, and Troy. Okay. Now, here's a guest. I'm not sure. Is it a guest of... A guest of no one, Bill Siskel. Where are you, Bill? <laughs> and our speaker, Richard McMurray. Yay. And a visitor from Salt Creek, Jane Muncie. Mm -hmm. And Barbara Baker, a guest of Mary Beth. 
Oh, you were here last week, last month, weren't you? Huh? Were you here last month? Yes. Yes. Welcome okay. back. Yeah. Thank you, Donna. Thank you all. Okay, it's time for the book raffle. Larry Gibbs and Rob Girardi. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna let the guest speaker have a chance to draw here. Don't forget we have the Battlefield bookshelf back there. We have note cards, we have cups. We pulled some other things out of the, uh, out of the crypt from days of yore. And just one ticket. Here you go. Not that. 241485. <clears throat> oh. The government might shut down, but the raffle and never the closes. And the criminals <laughs> never stop. No, but I do. I'm on vacation. <laughs> Pick a ticket. This is going to be my ticket. That's, That's a magic, magic table. 241-532. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> you never heard that before, right? <laughs> Two four one four one nine. Two four one four three eight. We raised $208 tonight for Battlefield Preservation. Thank you. Inspector General Tom Tresca is going to give us the uh, results of the quiz. Hello again, everybody. Uh, here's tonight's quiz. Richard McMurray speaking on A Georgian Looks at Sherman. Question one. Which of the following future Civil War notables was in William T. Sherman's graduating class at West Point? That is D, George H. Thomas, class of 1840. Uh, Sherman was sixth. He would have been fourth except for his demerits, and Thomas is, was twelfth. Two. In 1859, Sherman became superintendent of a new military school that later became what university? LSU, Louisiana State University. Go Tigers. <laughs> Just for Larry. Um, three, um, uh, true or false, Sherman commanded a brigade at first bull run? That is true. Uh, questions four to seven, match the Sherman quote to his subject, a fellow, human, a fellow Union general. Uh, hell of a damn fool, that is uh, C, Justin Kilpatrick. Almost childlike in his love for me was A, Ulysses S. Grant. Ought to have been born in petticoats and ought to wear them was B. O. O. Howard. And I saw his in, in his intelligence, manliness, and patriotism throughout the war. That, of course, is D. Stephen A. Hurlbut. Uh, eight. What was Sherman's Christmas present to President Lincoln in 1864? 
That was the city of Savannah, along with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition, and also about 25,000 bales of cotton. True or false, Sherman was called a traitor for being too lenient with his surrender terms to Joseph E. Johnston. Uh, that is true. Several newspapers called him that, and this was flamed a lot by uh, uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. And finally, question 10. What film icon portrayed Sherman in the 1862 epic, How the West Was Won? Well, that was John Wayne. Uh, we had one perfect 10, and that was Nathaniel Lyon. And you'll be stuck with me a little while longer here because uh, as uh, chairman of the nominating committee, it is my honor to present the slate of candidates for office for the, the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago for 2011 to 2012. So um, as I call your name, please remain, please stand and remain standing, and please withhold applause until everyone's name has been announced. For President, Bob Stoller. Senior Vice President, Brian Sider. First Vice President, Mark Matranga. Second Vice President, Paula Walker. Treasurer, Cindy Heckler. Assistant Treasurer, Jonathan Sebastian. Secretary, John Kotulko. Assistant Secretary, Mike Weeks. Uh, to fill the vacant trustee position expiring in 2012, Bob Gibson. And to fill the vacancies for uh, trustees expiring in 2013, Tom Murray, and Rick Branham. <laughs> Do I hear any uh, nomination, other nominations from the floor? Uh, these then are your candidates for election, which, we will be, which the election will be held at next month's meeting. Thank you. Will the members of the slate, after the speaker is finished, pause for five seconds and gather in the back of the room for a photograph for the, for the record? Jim, Jim Cunningham has a uh, announcement about an upcoming cultural event. Something like that. Uh, I apologize, I don't have something to throw out there, but I only heard about this uh, yesterday. There's a small theater company up on Bryn Mawr Avenue whose name escapes me that's putting out a play that actually opened tonight called The Copperhead. It was written in 1918. Uh, as this title implies, it's about an Illinois uh, man who was, uh, had southern sympathies, uh, had a, in spite of a son that joined the Union Army and died at Vicksburg. Uh, anyway, uh, if you check uh, theaterinchicago.com, they had more information about it and ticket prices and whatnot. It runs weekends uh, from now uh, until uh, mid-May. There's a couple of Thursday nights in May where they're having a, uh, a presentation to it. It looked really interesting. There's actually a, a showing this Thursday night at 7 o'clock. I think the theater is uh, 10.20 or 10.30. Uh, on Bryn Mawr, City up on the north side. Lit. Pardon me? City Lit Theater. What lit? City Lit. Second Lit? City. Oh, City Lit. Okay. Hey, there you go. Um, it looked really interesting, so check it out. Earlier, I forgot to mention um, that Paula Walker, who is on the publicity committee, has arranged a um, lecture at the LaGrange Public Library at 2 p.m. on uh, Saturday, May 14th. 
and uh, our own Michael Weeks will be giving a presentation. We are trying to get attract new members. So the whole purpose of this lecture is to invite people who don't really know much about the Civil War, are maybe a little bit intimidated to come to a group like ours, believe it or not, people are intimidated. And um, so we're, we're trying to get new members and I commend Paula for her efforts in getting this arranged and as well as Michael Re Weeks who has agreed to uh, give the presentation. Thank you so much. Now I forgot to Want to come up for a minute? Okay, I am going to uh, invite Larry Hewitt up to the podium to um, introduce his good friend. No, Richard doesn't need to get under the table. It is indeed a pleasure and an honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Most of you have heard him before, probably more than once. He is a recipient of the Nevins Freeman Award given by this organization. Uh, the author of several outstanding books uh, most notably uh, Two Great Rebel Armies. Um, but I would like to say how I met Richard. Uh, in 1980, you know, everybody has the things they want to be remembered for on their tombstone. And so many of you have heard of Frank Vandiver and Tom Connolly. One of the things that will be on my tombstone was that I got Frank Vandiver and Tom Connolly to show up for the same conference <laughs> in 1988. Well, it went to my head. And in 1989, I invited them both back, and they both stiffed me. One with six weeks' notice and one with six days' notice. Uh, may they both rest in peace. The, uh, my last-minute substitutions were Grady McWinney that I had met before and Richard McMurray that I had not had the pleasure of ever meeting before, who came highly recommended he stole the show because I had my students at the symposium evaluate the speakers, and Richard was the hit. More importantly, one of the other members of the program was, oh gosh, em I'm sorry, yeah, Emory Thomas, the biographer of Robert E. Lee. Now, what is significant about this is Emory Thomas was in graduate school with Tom Connolly, where they both studied under Frank Vandiver. And as we're having dinner on Friday night, Emory was well aware that Tom and Frank had stiffed me. And he leans over and says, Larry, you have improved the program. And I had indeed, and many thanks to Richard McMurray, who saved me long ago and has on occasion done so since. Thank you very much, Larry, and thank all of you for inviting me back. I enjoy these roundtables and enjoy getting around to see people who are interested in the Civil War, see some old friends, meet some new people, get to talk to people like Bruce and Larry and Donnie and others of you whom I've had the pleasure of meeting before, and I really do appreciate the opportunity to come back here. And I want to speak this evening on the subject of a Georgian, I am a native Georgian, looks at Sherman. William Tecumseh Sherman died in New York City on February 14, 1891. 
In a short time after his death, a man walked into the county clerk's office in Cobb County, Georgia, Marietta, about 20 miles northwest of Atlanta, and asked to see some of the old county land and court records in conjunction with some legal work that the man was doing. When the clerk told him that the county had no such records dating from 1864 or earlier, the man said, why? And the clerk said, because that was the date that General Sherman, the son of a bitch, came through Marietta, burning our homes and city buildings and confiscating our crops and livestock, and he is now dead and in hell, and I'm glad of it. <laughs> well, there you have it. A Georgian looks at Sherman. Thank you, folks. <laughs> What I want to do this evening is give you another Georgian's view of Sherman, because exactly ten, uh, ten, eight, 10 years, eight months, and four days after Sherman's death, my mother was born in a house in Cobb County, and she grew up there. The house in which she first saw the light of day still stands. If you are familiar with the area, it's three or four miles west of the old downtown section of Marietta, two or three miles south of Kennesaw Mountain National Battlefield Park, and a mile or two east of Cheatham's Hill. And Cheatham's Hill and Kennesaw Mountain were important points in William T. Sherman's 1864 campaign in Georgia. And local, or at least family lore, has it that the house served as a Confederate hospital during the battle around Marietta June 1864, and as the headquarters of Lieutenant General William J. Hardee, who was one of the Confederate Corps commanders opposing Sherman's army in Georgia. My family lived in Cobb County, my mother's side of the family, at the time of the war, but did not then own the house. And in 1864, the family refugeed to its native South Carolina to escape from Sherman. Later, the family returned to Cobb County, and about 1890, as near as anybody can figure out, my grandfather, my mother's father, purchased the house in which my mother was to be born. The house remained in the family until 2006, when it was sold following the death of one of my cousins, who was then living there. As I say, the house still stands, it's uh, one of the historic homes in Cobb County. It was built about 1840 by a medical doctor from South Carolina. Once my mother finished college, she settled in Atlanta, where she taught school for many years, met and married my father, and lived for the rest of her life. I was born in Atlanta, and I grew up there in the 1940s and 1950s. And as a white child, Growing up in Atlanta at that time, I learned early on that there were 21 absolutely despicable, evil men who were responsible for all of the problems, real and imagined, of the city of Atlanta. Nine of these men were an evil group known as the Birmingham Barons, and another nine was a bad gang called the Nashville Vols. 
And every summer, the Birmingham Barons and the Nashville Vols would bring their baseball bats to Atlanta and try to do unnatural and unpleasant things to our local heroes, the Atlanta Crackers, <laughs> back when baseball in Atlanta was fun <laughs> before the Braves. <laughs> the 19th of these evil men was a man named Wally Butts. Wally Butts was for many years the head football coach at the University of Georgia, and he acquired some notoriety in 1962 when he and coach Paul Bear Bryant of the University of Alabama were allegedly involved in a scheme to fix the outcome of the football game that year between the two schools. And in the long and sordid history of the University of Georgia, this sorry mess is known as the great bare butts scandal. <laughs> Every year, butts teams did battle with the gallant Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, coached by that noble gentleman, Bobby Dodd. And we grew up hating the University of Georgia. The 20th evil man in the history of Atlanta was General John Bell Hood the Confederate general who commanded the defense of Atlanta in the last part of July and all of August 1864. The 21st evil man was William Tecumseh Sherman. Now everybody who has even a passing interest in the history of the American Civil War knows at least the general story of Sherman and Georgia, and in particular, Sherman and Atlanta. In May of 1864, as part of a five-pronged offensive that the federal government launched against the Confederacy, Sherman led an army of some 100,000 men into Georgia, based on Chattanooga, Tennessee, and aiming for Atlanta. And the other four prongs of that offensive were defeated in Louisiana and in Virginia that spring and summer. But early in September, Sherman managed to capture Atlanta. And it was that great military success that assured the reelection of Abraham Lincoln and forced Scarlett and Rhett and Prissy and Melanie and Melanie's baby to get in that wagon and to flee Atlanta while the city was burning. <laughs> Sherman kept his army in Atlanta until mid-November and then in that month, at the presidential election safely over, Sherman and his Yankee barbarians tore down what was left of Atlanta, burned the rubble, and set off across the state of Georgia on a month-long orgy of unbridled murder, banditry, rape, robbery, arson, plunder, pillage, and looting that left the entire state totally devastated for the next 100 years. <laughs> Any white child who grew up in Atlanta between about 1870 or so and 1970 would have learned that version of Sherman and Georgia. I certainly learned that in the schools of the city, was taught in the history classes, and it was further impressed on our minds by novels such as Gone with the Wind, Savannah, and The March, 
and most important probably for most people by motion pictures. Birth of a Nation in 1915, Gone with the Wind in 1939, and Sherman's March in 1986. Sherman's March is not about the Civil War. It's the rather, a rather boring film about some poor fella who was out seeking his lady love. Apparently any lady love would do. And he traveled, he traveled from the Chattanooga area to Atlanta, across Georgia to Savannah, and then northward through South Carolina and North Carolina to Raleigh, following the path of Sherman's army in 1864 and 1865. As I recall, he never found the lady love, but occasionally in the movie he pauses to narrate about what Sherman's army did when it came by here. And it's one of the great unfortunate things in the teaching of history that you have to try to offset what students see on television and in the movies. It's got to be true it was in the movie. One of my favorite examples stemmed ultimately from a movie in the late 1950s called On the Beach. Some of you look like you might possibly barely be old enough to remember that. But it was a movie starring Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner, and it's in the aftermath of the United States and the Soviet Union shooting off all their bombs and rockets at each other, killing everybody in the world outside Australia. And the surviving people are in Australia, and there's a radioactive cloud coming across the Indian Ocean heading for Australia, and the government's issued suicide pills, and Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner get to carrying on there in, in the movie. And it sort of spun off a number of films and made-for-television shows. One of them was entitled, I think, The Day After. It was a similar thing about people in Kansas or Indiana or somewhere all dying of radiation sickness. And some students of mine saw that, and they would come up to me, and they say, God, it must have been awful in the 1950s. You, you remember we practiced hiding under your desk in homeroom in case the Russians dropped a hydrogen bomb on the school? I said, it must have been awful growing up then. Every day you go off to school expecting to be killed. You'll never see your family again. The whole planet will be radioactive waste just glowing in the darkness of space. It was awful. How was it like thinking about that all the time? And I said, I have no earthly idea. I didn't think about that when I was in high school. <laughs> I said, oh, what did you think about? I said, I spent a lot of my time thinking about what would happen if this gigantic killer asteroid from deep outer space came hurtling into the solar system, bounced off of Neptune, ricocheted over and smashed into the Earth throwing up a gigantic cloud of dirt, dust, and debris like the one that wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. <laughs> and when all that was over and it had all settled down, there were only 12 people left on the planet. I still remember who they were. I still remember who they were. They were Elizabeth Taylor. Esther Williams, Jane Russell, Christine Career, Marilyn Monroe, Kim Novak, Ava Gardner, Audrey Hepburn, 
Gina Lolo Bridget, Sophia Loren, one of the cheerleaders at Decatur High School, and myself. That's what I thought about in high school. I learned early on driving around with my family on visits to the old home place where my uncle then lived. And in countryside around Georgia, we'd pass these old brick chimneys standing forlornly in weed-choked fields or by some dirt road. And I learned those were Sherman chimneys, Sherman Sentinels. Even if, as I learned years later, they stood 200 miles from any place ever visited by anybody in Sherman's army. And it would not be much of an exaggeration to say that we white Georgia school children of that era grew up firmly convinced that William Tecumseh Sherman bore responsibility for every fire that blazed up in Georgia from February 1st, 1733 <laughs> when General Oglethorpe kindled his first campfire on Yamacraw Bluff, which is now downtown Savannah, down to December 7, 1946, at the Great Weinkauf Hotel conflagration in Atlanta. Sherman burned everything. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Sherman the soldier, very briefly, and then about Sherman the man, and then to borrow the title of one of the books about him, Sherman, the general who marched to hell. The facts of his life and military career are very simple. He was born in Lancaster, Ohio on February 8, 1820. Grew up in the home of his foster father, Thomas Ewing, who was a prominent political, legal, and businessman in Ohio at the time. Both the Sherman House and the Ewing House still stand in Lancaster. The Sherman House is open to the public. The Ewing house is not. Sherman was ultimately to marry Ellen Ewing, his foster sister. And he went to West Point in large part because it was a free education and nobody had to pay for it, at least not directly. You, I, I've got to catch myself on this. I'm making the same mistake the journalists make when they talk about free government paid health care. You know, there's no such thing as, if you pay taxes, there's no such thing as free government paid health care. But Sherman had a free government-paid education at West Point. Graduated in 1840, served in the U.S. Army for 13 years. He was in the Army in the Mexican War, but he was in California. And so he had the idea or the, the belief that he had missed the great professional opportunity of combat service in Mexico. As I mentioned, 1850, he married Ellen Ewing. In 1853, he resigned from the Army and he spent the next eight years practicing law in the banking business and teaching at the Louisiana State Seminary of Learning and Military Academy in Pineville, which as you know from the trivia quiz is now Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge and is Larry's great alma mater. So he's, I'm surprised he's not up on the table leading cheers for the LSU Tigers. My other alma mater, Kentucky, made it to the final four this year. Yes, and I believe your LSU alma mater has to play Oregon in the first, uh, first game of the football season. This, that should be interesting. Should be an interesting game. But at any rate, Sherman was in the Army for this 13-year period, and during that time, he spent a great deal of his service in the South, at Mobile and at Charleston in particular. And during those years that he was stationed in the South, 
He got to know a large number of Southerners. He'd known some from his time at West Point. Got to know a large number of others. Came to admire the Southerners. He came to admire the South. He adopted many of the ideas and beliefs of white Southerners at that time. His biographer, John Marzalak, says that in many ways he became a Southerner in his beliefs, in his attitudes, in his outlook. In, in fact, says Marzalak, he agreed with white Southerners on every public issue of the day except one. That one exception was secession. Not slavery, not the tariff, not state rights, that is the correct term, by the way, S-T-A-T-E. But Sherman agreed with white Southerners on every public issue except secession. Secession he saw as anarchy. And when he, when he realized that Louisiana had declared herself out of the Union, he resigned his position with the state government, went back north, went into the Federal Army, and again, as we know from the trivia quiz this evening, commanded a brigade at the First Battle of Manassas. He was then transferred out to the West, and he served in the West for the remainder of the war, rising from division commander to department commander to corps commander to army commander, ultimately to command what we would call an army group. And he directed by 1864, 1865, he was commanding all federal forces between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. More important from his military career, he became a great friend of Ulysses S. Grant during this period. And again, as we know from the trivia quiz, he and Grant developed a very close working relationship and friendship there. But I suspect that it was largely owing to my mother's interest in the whole matter that I developed a great interest myself in the Civil War in general, which she was always careful to call the war between the states, and in the war in Georgia in particular. As I said, we spent many a time going around to visit sites, Kennesaw Mountain, Cheatham's Hill. The, I still have artifacts, bullets, cannonballs, belt buckles, buttons, bayonets, that were turned up when the fields around the house where she was born and grew up were plowed. Unfortunately, the whole area now has been pretty much converted into housing developments. In school, uh, we would often in the spring when teachers are tired and don't want to teach, we would get on buses and go to Grant Park in Atlanta, named for a locally prominent citizen, not the Union General, to see the cyclorama of the Battle of Atlanta, which I hope all of you have seen. Uh, if you have not, you need to go to Atlanta sometime and see it. It's this magnificent painting, 400 and something feet in circumference and 50 or 60 feet high that's connected in with three-dimensional figures depicting part of the Battle of Atlanta. And not even that horrible recorded message that some fool wrote 5,000 years ago narrating the battle can detract from, from the, the, the painting. You know, the lucky people are the deaf people who go in there and can't hear it. <laughs> and they just look at the painting. But it's well worth going to see. And I went off to the Virginia Military Institute, and sometime during my third class year, sophomore year there, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and specialize in the study of Civil War history. And a number of the professors at VMI suggested that I apply to Emory University in Atlanta to study with Bell Wiley, who was the Civil War historian there. 
So I did, not knowing whether Bell Wiley was a man or a woman or a musical instrument or whatever. <laughs> I just applied to Emory. And through the greatest administrative mistake in the history of the university, I was accepted. <laughs> and my plan was that I'd graduate from VMI in June 1961, spend six months on active duty with the Army under a program the Army then had, six months active duty, seven and one half years active reserve get out of the Army, start graduate school. Little did I know that there was a worldwide conspiracy against me. And in the summer of 1961, Nikita Khrushchev built the Berlin Wall for the sole purpose of keeping me in the Army for another 18 months. Because I got a letter from Department of the Army. President Kennedy has realized he cannot possibly deal with the Berlin Wall crisis unless you are in the Army for two years. Therefore, you are being involuntarily extended. So I went off into the Army for two years. Most of the time I spent at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where I was the personnel management officer for about half the units at Fort Campbell. For the first 18 or 19 months I was in the Army, I could not afford an automobile which meant that I was stuck in the BOQ, the bachelor officer's quarters, on weekends. And once the football season ended and there was nothing on television worth watching, I had a chance to do a lot of reading about the Civil War and get kind of a running start on my graduate work at Emory. But fortunately, Jack and I were able to deal with the Berlin Wall crisis, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, with the integration of Ole Miss Crisis, and with a number of lesser brouhaha's that came up during that time. And in the late summer of 1963, I got out of the Army and began graduate work at Emory. Bill Wiley and I had decided through correspondence that I should devote my time to writing a dissertation, master's degree in dissertation, on some facet of the Atlanta campaign. At that time, there was only one book, on the campaign, Jacob D. Cox's book, Atlanta, which was written in 1882. And we had learned a little bit about the Civil War since Cox wrote that book. And so the idea was that I would write a dissertation on the first half of the Atlanta campaign when Joseph E. Johnston commanded the Confederate Army. Why the first half, you ask? It's because Bell Wiley had another student named Errol Klaus who was writing a dissertation on the second half. <laughs> And for years, I expected to see a two-volume history of the Atlanta campaign by Bell Wiley come pouring <laughs> off the press. But fortunately, Wiley had too much integrity to steal what Errol and I had done, or more likely, he decided what we had done was not worth stealing. <laughs> and he did not want his name associated with it. But after I finished graduate school, I went and taught for a number of about 22, 23 years at Valdosta State College in extreme South Georgia and at North Carolina State University. And during that time, I published a number of articles on the Atlanta campaign and a biography of John Bell Hood and a number of other things dealing in one way or another with the Atlanta campaign. And the result was that by about 1991 or 92, I'd gotten sick and tired of the Atlanta campaign. I didn't want anything more to do with it. And I got a phone call from Ann Bailey, who with Brooks Simpson was editing a series of books on the great campaigns of the Civil War. 
And Ann and Brooks wanted me to do the volume on Atlanta, and I did not want to do it. I am sick and tired of this damned Atlanta campaign. I don't want any, you know, I will never see a Gone with the Wind again. If I never see a street named Peachtree, I will be happy. You know, I'm sick and tired of this. But Ann was very persistent, and I have a difficult time saying no to a lady. The reverse of that, unfortunately, is not true. <laughs> So finally, I agreed to write the book. And in, in retrospect, it was, it was like being forced to stay in the Army those extra 18 months. Because just then, is, is in the Army, I had time to do a lot of reading. Now, with this book, which was very short format, 90,000 words, which is short for a book, I had to take what I thought about the Atlanta campaign and condense it down to get it into the book like that, and your little the 90,000 words. And it forced me to pull together a lot of ideas and concepts that I had been working on, either consciously or subconsciously, over the preceding 30-some-odd years since I had been dealing in one way or another with the campaign. And it was that, I think, that shaped the book a great deal. And looking back, I can see that this process forced me to realize that I had come to change a lot of the ideas with which I had grown up. For example, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, I had read literally tens of thousands of letters, diary entries, reminiscences, biographies, autobiographies, memoirs by people who served in the war, including a large number of them by Union soldiers something I had never done growing up. I'd been exposed to Bell Wiley with his great book, Billy Yank, on the common soldier of the Union Army. And I had come to develop a great deal of respect for, uh, for, for the men who served in the Federal Army in the Civil War. I realized I had even come to change my ideas about Sherman because I had come to admire, to respect, and even to like William T. Sherman, and I'm going to come back to that in a little while. I also realized that during this period, after I left high school, I had undergone a number of significant experiences that led me or forced me to reevaluate a lot of things, a lot of the ideas with which I had grown up. As I said, I grew up in the Atlanta area, went to school there through high school, and then went up north to Virginia to go to school. And in Virginia, for the first time in my life, I met some Yankees. <laughs> I even roomed with some Yankees. One of them from the Chicago area named Graham King, good friend of mine. One of my closest friends at VMI was Jonathan Daniels from Keene, New Hampshire. One of my roommates was Dick Lindquist from Rochester, Michigan. I got to know and to like and admire and respect a large number of people from the northern states. My younger son, Jonathan, is named for Jonathan Daniels. And if you've heard the name, it was because he was shot to death in Alabama in 1965 by a Ku Klux Klansman. But I had that experience. I had the same experience in the Army. I met people from the north. And again, this was something that I had never done 
before. And I've even gotten the point now where one of my daughters-in-law is a Yankee. That means three of my grandchildren are half Yankees. I tell people I have two sons and two daughters-in-law. One of the sons is a Chinese linguist. His wife is Chinese. The other son is a biochemist. His wife is a gastroenterologist. She's the Yankee. And I cannot understand a word any one of the four of them says. <laughs> but Yankees are good guys, something I had never realized until I went off to college and went through the rat line at VMI with a number of them. The civil rights movement in the 1960s will also change the way that you think about a lot of the issues revolving around the Civil War and the people who fought in the war with the result, whether they intended it or not, to eliminate slavery. Bell Wiley had a great interest in the history of the modern South and in the history of changes that were coming to the South. And he got me interested in a number of facets of modern Southern history. What all of this did was to lead me away from these childhood ideas and experiences with which I had grown up in Atlanta in the 1940s. And it changed to a good large extent the way I thought about the war in general, about Union soldiers in particular, and especially about William T. Sherman. The man went on in the Civil War to prove that he was not a good combat general, but in terms of his ability to see the big picture of the war and in terms of his ability with logistics, he was superb among the generals of the war. So don't go to Sherman if you want to study the detailed battlefield maneuvers of the armies because Sherman was just not very good at that. He lacked a, a killer instinct and he often did not follow up and make the most out of victories that he could have. Sherman the man is also fascinating. Indeed, I believe that he was the most interesting of all the high-ranking people tossed up during the Civil War. And if I could pick one character from the Civil War, either side, civilian or military, that I would like to sit down with and have a conversation, it would be William Tecumseh Sherman. I think to sit and talk with Sherman over a cup of coffee, over a glass of wine, or more likely in Sherman's case, straight whiskey, that it would be a wonderful experience. The only person I think who might be of equal interest with Sherman is Abraham Lincoln, but I don't think Lincoln would be a good person to have a conversation with because A, he was a lawyer, B, he was a politician, and on both counts, he would be very reluctant to tell you what he really thought. <laughs> Sherman was not that way. He would tell you exactly what he thought. I have a friend, many of you know him, but he doesn't want his name used in this connection because as he says, I still have friends in Kansas City. But he knew Sher uh, Truman, President Truman in Truman's last years. And Truman and Sherman seem a lot, of like, a lot alike. And he says Truman was the most profane individual he ever met. So if you wanted to know what Truman thought about something, ask him and duck because he would tell you. Some of you may have read Merle Miller's fine book, Plain Speaking, an oral biography of Harry Truman. What do you think of Richard Nixon, Mr. President? 
Well, he's a no good, shifty eyed, goddamn lying son of a bitch. <laughs> what about Joe Kennedy, Mr. President? You know, the father of Jack, Bobby, and Teddy. What about Joe Kennedy? He's a tight fisted old son of a bitch. What about General MacArthur? He's a dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> Truman would tell you what he thought. Sherman was the same way. Now, we have recordings, of course, of Truman. We have no recordings of Sherman speaking, although I was very interested a year or so ago to read some brief accounts of the discovery of what was called a phonoautograph. This was a early recording instrument. Dates from the 1850s. And it used the smoke from whale oil lamps to form a kind of coating on paper and some sort of needle device to record the sound from it. And they found one of these things in, I believe, France, and sent it to a lab at Berkeley. And they were able to recover 10 or 15 seconds of the recorded sound. It's a woman singing. It's the oldest recorded human voice. And it's this, you know, this is the kind of thing that fascinates me because this means that theoretically, there is a recording of Lincoln delivering the Gettysburg Address. Or of Sherman conducting one of his conversations, particularly about people he did not like. And there were a number of people that Sherman did not like. We have written comments from Sherman's fellow soldiers, most of which have been sanitized and the profanity left out. But we know from what they said that Sherman used a great deal of profanity and would tell you the truth and would not hesitate to say what was on his mind and for that reason, unlike a lot of other people, he was not boring in the least. So you've got Sherman the soldier, who is a man who was not a great combat leader, but on the level of what might be called grand strategy, where you could see the really big picture of the war. He was not equaled by very many, if any, at the time. You also have Sherman the master of logistics and supplies, which is the crucial element in warfare, but you don't have Sherman, the killer general. You have Sherman, the fascinating man. And I think in all, both of these categories, most people who study the war would agree with me on them. But it's the third category about Sherman that I want to talk about for the next few minutes. Sherman, the general who marched to hell, to borrow the title of a book about him. As I mentioned earlier, in November 1864, Sherman took what took his army, wrecked what was left of Atlanta, and marched out across Georgia with an army of about 65,000 men. By late December, he was off Savannah. When the Confederates uh, evacuated the city, he occupied the city, presented it as a Christmas present to President Lincoln. I want to talk about what happened between the time Sherman left Atlanta and the time he arrived in Savannah. If you talk to your average typical white southerner about that, you get the story that Sherman destroyed everything. As I mentioned earlier, he devastated the state so that for a century, the state was handicapped and backward because of Sherman's march. He just destroyed everything. You know, it's an interesting experience to take tour groups around in Georgia. Here's an antebellum home built in 1840 by so-and-so. 
This antebellum home was built in 1852 by Colonel such and such. That antebellum home over there was built in 1849. Eventually people say, well, if Sherman burned everything, where did these antebellum homes come from? You know where they built last week? Alan Julian, who was a career army officer stationed at Fort McPherson in Atlanta, got interested in Atlanta history when he retired from the army. He lived in Atlanta. And he spent a lot of his time working with the Atlanta History Center and the Georgia Department of Archives and History. And he would go around the state and interview people. And he tells the story that he went to Marietta one time to interview this little old lady up there about Marietta and the Civil War. And they were having tea in her house. And she was telling him about how Sherman had destroyed everything in Cobb County. And he would say, surely he must have left something. Oh, no, no, he destroyed everything. By the way, Colonel Julian, I see you've finished your tea. Come on now, and I'll show you some of our nice antebellum homes. <laughs> she never saw the connection in there. As I say, if Sherman destroyed everything, where did these antebellum homes come from? The fact is that Sherman marched his army across Georgia in four columns from the outside of this column to the outside of this column was a distance of about 60 miles. And they marched from Atlanta to Savannah in a march that took them over approximately 12% of the land area of Georgia. We miss this a lot of times, people who don't live there. Georgia is a big state. It is the largest state east of the Mississippi River. A lot of people don't realize that. It's a big state. Sherman only covered about 12% of it. What damage did he do in that 12%? Sherman himself gave two figures. He said on one occasion his men destroyed a million dollars worth of property for every mile that they marched. $300 million. Said on another occasion they destroyed $100 million of which $20 million was legitimate military targets. The rest was sheer plunder and waste. Lee Kinnett, who's written a fine book on Sherman's march, went back to the census of 1860. In the census of 1860, if you, which listed the population and the value of property that people own, if you exclude the value of slaves, slaves in 1860 were property, you could assign a monetary value to them. And if you exclude the value of real estate, there were $300 million worth of property in Georgia. Did Sherman destroy everything in the state, marching over only 12% of the state? No, he didn't. He made those numbers up. Like many of these government data that are always being really, they're made up. I know, I used to make them up when I was at Fort Campbell. People would call up and they would want the, these numbers. And I said, what is that? I said, well, we got to have the number of it. He said, yeah, but I can't get it for you unless you tell me what it is. They had no idea what it was. Somebody called them from some higher headquarters and said they needed to know the, you know, the number of left-handed Lithuanian immigrants assigned to Fort Campbell or something. And there was no way you could get that kind of information. And I remember going over there one time. They were, they were all worried because there was a deputy associate assistant undersecretary of the Army for something or other coming to Fort Campbell on a visit. And they were all afraid he would ask questions and they had to have the answers for him. And they said, he might want to know the percent of officer turnover. 
So they called me, said, what was the percent of officer turnover last year? I said, what is officer turnover? I said, is it the number of officers who were here on January 1st who were not here on December 31st? What about somebody transferred from company A to company? I said, it's the percent of officer turnover. Get it for us. And I, I, you know, I tried to do a good job. I remember I went up to the post headquarters. I was talking to the guy in charge of all of this. And finally he said, 43%. I won't argue with you. I don't know if the Deputy Associate Assistant Under Secretary of the Army for something or other asked about the percent of officer turnover or not, but if he did, he was told, 43%, sir. And I have been haunted for almost 50 years now that our whole misadventure in Vietnam was based on that false information. But a lot of those government numbers are, are things people made up, make up because there, there's no way to get that information. And if you ever work for those people, you can see that. But white Georgians like to think that Sherman destroyed everything, and the fact is he did not. At most, he could have destroyed what was in that 12% of the state, and he left a lot of that. We don't have records, but there are the antebellum homes to look at, and the fragmentary records that we do have indicate that a lot of the property did survive. Soldiers took food, yes, because they had to eat. But the property itself, if the home was occupied, tended to survive, despite what you see in the movies. And it also needs to be remembered that Sherman's army did not touch most of the big cities in the state. Atlanta was largely destroyed. But a lot of that destruction came in the battles around Atlanta in July and August of 1864, not when Sherman's army occupied the city. You have probably seen that famous photograph taken east of Atlanta. Shows a, a landscape blasted like a World War I battlefield. There's a ruins of a tall building in the right background and running in the foreground there's a section of railroad track with the wheels of 84 boxcars. The boxcars were wooden, so they were gone, but the wheels were there 84 boxcars full of ammunition. The Confederates blew it up because they couldn't get it out of the city when they left. Not Sherman's men, the Confederates. And all that devastation was by Confederates. Confederates set those fires that forced Scarlet and Rhett and Prissy and Melanie and Melanie's baby to flee from Atlanta. And Sherman's army never touched Macon, Columbus, Augusta, or Albany, and in Georgia, it is Albany. As a waitress there told a friend of mine one time, when they asked her how you pronounce the name of the town, she said, honey, it's Albany, just like Albany, New York. <laughs> and of course, they did not destroy Savannah. You know, Atlanta was the only large city it suffered. They tore up railroads, legitimate military targets. They destroyed bridges, legitimate military targets. They destroyed industrial areas like Griswoldville, where they were making weapons and ammunition, or not ammunition, clothing for the Confederate Army, legitimate military top, uh, targets. They destroyed mills that produced flour and food for the Confederate Army, legitimate military topics. And occasionally they did destroy somebody's house but they certainly did not do the damage. It, it, it's been much exaggerated, is, is the point I'm trying to make. 
What about their harm to civilians? Did they harm civilians? Did they kill people? We know that Sherman's army shot exactly one white civilian marching across Georgia in 1864. There was a Confederate or Georgia slash Confederate judge near Milledgeville who was going around making speeches, urging the people of Georgia to adopt a scorched earth policy and to wipe out, destroy everything in Sherman's path. And so some of Sherman's soldiers thought they would help the judge with his project, so they went out to burn his plantation. <laughs> I mean, how could he object? <laughs> he wasn't there. His overseer was so dumb that he picked up a gun and came out to chase Sherman's soldiers away. And he was shot. At other occasions, like at Sandersville, for example, as Sherman's troops were approaching the town, they were shot at. Sherman said, that civilians shooting at our soldiers burned the town. And then he discovered that they were regular Confederate troops in the town. And he said, nope, cancel that order. That's legitimate warfare. So be very skeptical when people tell you that Sherman burned everything when he hurt and killed people for no purpose. Also, you need to remember the accusations against Sherman's soldiers of rape. You know, there's uh, some, some novel I read one time, it's set in the future, but these people discover Gone with the Wind, and they think all the, all the women in there were expecting to be raped. There are, in Sherman's march, there are exactly three documented cases of Sherman soldiers raping white women. And we know about two of them, because the men who did it were arrested, tried by court-martial, and convicted and punished. One of them was sentenced to the Dry Tortugas. He was pardoned by President Andrew Johnson, who was a white Southerner. And the third one was beaten up by his own comrades, and we know about it because it's in the diary of another Northern soldier. Black women were raped, and there are no records of that. But in terms of the raping of white women, almost nothing, and probably less than would have been the case in normal circumstances anyway. In fact, there's a wonderful paragraph from a Pennsylvania doctor, a medical officer, who was with Sherman's army when they marched into Atlanta, and he wrote that the women of Atlanta are dressed up in their finest clothes, expecting the raping to commence. <laughs> but thus far, they have been disappointed. And they say that our soldiers are behaving better than their own men when they were here. Again, be very skeptical of that sort of thing. White Southerners also like to blame Sherman for expelling civilians from Atlanta and from the little town of Roswell, where he ordered them to get out and to go away. And it's true, he did that. He expelled three, 4,000 civilians from the city of Atlanta after he occupied it, they had a choice, go north or south. He expelled three or 400 women from the little town of Roswell, which was a textile center, and they were sent north, many of them never to return. But before you go judging Sherman harshly for that, remember what had happened in that area 30 years earlier. The Cherokee Indians were living there, and gold was discovered on their land. And at the behest of the white Georgians, the United States Army came in, rounded up the Cherokee, and marched them on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. 
12, 15,000. Four or 5,000 of them died on that trek to Oklahoma. So just when, when people say Sherman treated the civilians badly by expelling them from Atlanta and Roswell, what were they doing in Atlanta and Roswell anyway? That was Cherokee land from which the white Georgians had been instrumental in removing the Cherokee. Finally, one last thing that I want to say about Sherman in Georgia, and I think in some ways this is really the key. Sherman's coming to Georgia was welcomed by a large percentage of the population of Georgia. And that was true in every southern state. In South Carolina, a majority of the people welcomed Sherman's coming because 57% of the population of South Carolina consisted of slaves. They just usually aren't counted when people talk about Southerners. But Southerners, blacks are a large part, both numerically and historically, of the history of the South. And they have as much right to be called Southerners as the rest of us do. They welcomed Sherman's coming. Three or four days out of Atlanta, Sherman saw an old black man standing beside the road, looking at this endless column of troops and horses and wagons and guns, and Sherman rode over to talk to him. He wanted to see if the old fellow understood what all this meant. Yes, indeed. He said he did. Said he had been waiting and watching and praying for years for the angel of the Lord to show up and to deliver him and his people from slavery. And in 1864, the angel of the Lord showed up. And his name was William Tecumseh Sherman. The blacks in the South, loyal whites in the South, constituted, I believe, a majority of the population of the Confederate States. They welcomed the Union armies when they came. They provided them with information and food. Prisoners who escaped from Andersonville could find shelter, food, and guides on the slave cabins on the plantations. All this got written out of Southern history after the war, when it was written by pro-Confederates. And they wrote out the Unionists in the South. They expelled the blacks from Southern history. And they created this post-war facade of a united South. Jefferson Davis was one of the worst in doing this. But during the war, Sherman's men knew, knew what was going on. Sherman's men, in their diaries, in their memoirs, in their songs and letters, recorded the help that they got from white Unionists and from the slaves. And one of the best known examples of it was in one of the songs associated with Sherman's march. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> but I do want you to listen to a couple of the verses. How the darkies shouted and made a joyful sound. How the turkeys gobbled that our commissaries found. How the very sweet potatoes started from the ground. There were good and loyal men whose eyes were filled with tears when they saw the dear old flag they had not seen for years. They could hardly be restrained from breaking forth in cheers. Hoorah, hoorah, we bring the jubilee. Hoorah, hoorah, the flag that makes you free. So we sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching through Georgia. Thank you, folks.
we have time for questions. Yes, sir. Oh. You, you referred to loyal unions. What percentage of white Southerners, of white Georgians, would you estimate would have remained loyal to the to the United States during the good 25 to 30 percent and more than that in certain areas like North Georgia was very Northeast Georgia in particular was very strongly unionist and a lot of those people fled from that area went into Tennessee and joined unionist units and if you look at the, the regiments in the Union armies there's some of them designated the first East Tennessee second those are made up of white southerners from that area there's a book, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's a history of two of the counties in northern Georgia. Came out within the last couple of years. <coughs> Fanning County and I don't, I don't, somewhere up in north Georgia. And uh, this guy did, you know, those, those counties were in revolt against the state of Georgia by 1863. You know, they, did, they, did, they didn't want to be dragged into secession to start with. And you can go into this, the, some of the states, there's indication, I think Louisiana, that there was a lot of tampering with the vote on the secession convention to make it appear that the secessionists had won. And it's probably in the South as a whole, somewhere around 25, 30% uh, whites supported the Union. And when you add to that the fact that the black population uh, ran another 30% or so across the South, You've got a majority of the population. Somebody else had a yes, sir. Would you enlarge on your comment uh, regarding Sherman's shortcomings as a battle commander? Would I enlarge on my comment concerning Sherman's shortcomings as a battle commander? Sherman, on several occasions, found himself on a battlefield where he had the opportunity literally to finish off the Confederate Army. Let me give you an example. One of them was at the Battle of Jonesboro on September 1st, 1864, south of Atlanta. This is the battlefield that Scarlet went over going home, going back to Tara. It's right through the, because that's in Clayton, not Clayton, yeah, Clayton County, where the, uh, where the Battle of Jonesboro was fought and where Tara was. Oh, foreign tourists go there and they walk to find Tara. <laughs> they can't get it through their hands and it's a fictitious place. <laughs> but in that battle, when, when the battle ended, if you think about a clock, Sherman's army is at the center of the clock. One core of the Confederate army is at 12, one is at 3, and one is at 6. And Sherman's officers came to, you know, we can finish them off. Sherman said, no, we've got to tear up this railroad. They tore up the railroad you know, for miles anyway, but he wanted to make sure it was torn up. And the Confederates were able to reunite and go on with the war. And one other example, at Bentonville in March 1865, the Union Army that was attacking the left wing of the Confederate Army, division commanded by Joseph Maurer, who is my nominee for the best of the Union division commanders, had his division within 100 or 200 yards of the only bridge over Mill Creek by which Johnston's army could have retreated, and Sherman ordered him back. 
Mao says, we can finish them off. You know, we go over here, we can finish them off. Sherman says, no, we gotta go over here to Goldsboro to get supplies. That's what I meant, that, uh, that he, wouldn't, he would not push it through to eliminate the Indian. Yes, sir? What was the nature of the so-called nervous breakdown early in the war? What was the nature of Sherman's early nervous breakdown? In the late summer and fall of 1861, Sherman was ordered out to Kentucky to serve under Robert Anderson, the general uh, major then at Fort Sumter, then a general commanding in Kentucky in what ultimately would become the Army of the Cumberland. And Anderson resigned, I believe, for reasons of health in the early fall of 1861, and Sherman, by seniority, found himself in command. And Sherman fell victim to one of the great con jobs in the war that Albert Sidney Johnston pulled off when Sidney Johnston managed to convince the Federals that he had an overwhelming force and was going to attack in the Federals in northern Kentucky. And this was too much for Sherman. Uh, he was of a nervous, excited temperament. He was inexperienced. Uh, he didn't, he'd never dealt with responsibility on that level. And he made the mistake of uh, telling the Secretary of War, it's going to take at least 200,000 men to win this war in the West. And of course, that was, it was like that poor guy who told Bush it's going to take 200,000 men to pacify Iraq uh, after we defeat Saddam Hussein. Except that guy didn't, I can't remember his name, he was the Army Chief of Staff. He didn't have a nervous breakdown. This responsibility was just such that Sherman did. Although, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I don't know that I can go beyond that to comment on it. But it came out of that just worry pressing down on an inexperienced man. He, he needed some time to get his feet on the ground commanding a large force. And fortunately, his friend Henry Halleck understood that, sent him home for a few weeks to rest. The newspapers said he was insane. Uh, Sherman, when he came back, he was assigned to command the rear area around Cairo, Illinois, at the southern tip of Illinois, managed sending supplies up the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers to Grant and Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, and sort of calmed down and got a position commanding a division under Grant and didn't have this overall responsibility. He was fine from then on. I don't know that I've answered your question, but as I say, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, and I've got to say something. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so you changed your mind about Sherman. What about John Bell Hood? Changed my mind about Sherman. What about John Bell Hood? There's a good book on Hood that everybody ought to find. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if you read it or not. <laughs> Sherman was a good When you grew up in Atlanta like I did, you learned that Hood was all bad dumb, stupid, incompetent, totally worthless, responsible for the loss of Atlanta and for the loss of the war. I've changed my mind on that a good deal. I think Hood, in terms of what he tried to do in maneuvering the army around Atlanta, came up with some very sound plans. The problem was in the execution of the plans. And I don't know how much of that, of course, as Commander Hood's responsible. But Hood adopted the, the policy, for example, of taking the Peachtree Creek, two of the three corps in his army, put them under William Hardee, and 
By luck and maneuver, Hood concentrated seven Confederate divisions against five Union divisions at Peachtree Creek. There was a big gap in the Union line. William Bate, who was commanding the right wing of the Hardee's line, was supposed to make an attack against the Federals going like this, and he wound up going like that, and they never got it straightened out. Uh, in Atlanta, a couple of days later, he had a gap in the Union lines. It was bungled piecemeal attack. I think the problem is execution. And to some extent, the difficulty is Hood's physical condition. Having lost the use of an arm at Gettysburg and a leg at Chickamauga, he physically could not get out and do a lot of things that some of the others could do. But I, I, I see Hood in a much better light, particularly if you look at what he tried to do, what he planned to do, as opposed to what was actually done. Yes, sir. Yes, mine is a two-in-one question. First, have you also changed your mind about Joseph Johnston? Yes. And two, why was it that General Johnston abandoned those little fortifications, the Choupets, as they were called, and didn't hold on to them trying to defend Atlanta from there? Yeah, okay. Uh, have I changed my mind about Joe Johnston? Yes. Um, I grew up, as people in Atlanta did at that time, that Joe Johnston was just the greatest thing since grits. <laughs> the dumbest thing ever in, in the whole history of the human race for Jefferson Davis to remove him from command. I think Johnston had lost the Atlanta campaign and that he would not have held Atlanta and that Hood did an amazing job to hold it for six weeks considering the state of affairs when he took command. Psychologically, diplomatically, politically, logistically, Johnston's campaign was a disaster for the Confederates. He, Johnston looks good because he's always compared to Braxton Bragg. <laughs> and, you know, that pretty much means anybody would look good. But I have changed my mind about Johnston. I rated him a lot lower. He had a great ability, like Sherman, to see the big picture. But he lacked whatever it is to get anything done with it. And I'm working on Sherman, I mean on Johnston now, and I'm sort of in the process of trying to make up my mind about it. You know, it wasn't intelligence. He was very smart. It wasn't uh, training. He was very well trained, arguably the best trained general on either, in either army in the war. He'd served in the topographical engineers, the artillery, the infantry, the cavalry, the quartermaster. Where do you get any other general who had that kind of experience in the army? But the problem was the moral courage, if you want to use that term, to do something with this knowledge that he had. Physically, he would have gone out and gotten himself shot, as he did several times in his career. But it was the moral courage of taking that risk that he lacked. And I think that would have dictated that he would have abandoned Atlanta. Then the second part of your question about the Chupades, these were some small fortifications that were built along the Chattahoochee River just north of Atlanta in late June 1864 when the Confederates were getting ready to abandon Kennesaw Mountain. Francis Shoup, who was the chief of artillery of the army, came to Johnston and said, look, if you're thinking about retreating from Kennesaw Mountain, we can build these little fortifications, maybe 
a fourth the size of this room, put a couple of cannons in them. These were vertical logs and dirt and everything piled up. Connect them with stockades and trenches and hold the Federals north of the Chattahoochee River. And Johnston, I don't think, ever bought much into the idea. And I'm very skeptical if it would have accomplished anything because all the Federals had to do was go up and down the river and cross the river. And if the Confederates had stayed in the Chupes, they would have been captured. But they were built by General Shoup and hence Chupes. There's one left, by the way. Yes? Uh, I wonder if you could comment on Snake Creek Gap. Could I comment on Snake Creek Gap? Yes, it's a long, narrow, high gap. <laughs> and a lot of snakes. And how well Other questions? <laughs> and how well Sherman did there. <laughs> Snake Creek Gap is uh, about 40 miles or so south of Chattanooga. There's a long ridge that runs from north to south called Rocky Face Ridge. And Johnston's army was posted on that ridge. The railroad ran through a gap in the ridge. The major roads between Chattanooga and Atlanta ran through that gap. And there were only three gaps in the ridge. Mill Creek Gap, which was up at the north, Doug Gap, which is in the center, and Snake Creek Gap, which is at the southern end. And Johnston fortified Mill Creek Gap. There's some wonderful earthworks still left up there at Mill Creek Gap. You know, on private property, ought to be named Poison Ivy Gap. <laughs> Believe me, I know. But Johnston fortified that gap. He fortified Doug Gap. He neglected Snake Creek Gap totally. And I'm not absolutely convinced he even knew about it because it doesn't run east and west. It runs north and south. And you can't see it from the railroad, which is the only place Johnston had been where he'd been close to it. But he didn't fortify it. And when Sherman began the Atlanta campaign, instead of attacking Johnston head on, he put about two-thirds of his army to demonstrate against Johnston up here at the northern end of Rocky Face Ridge and sent James B. McPherson's Army of the Tennessee marching way around through Snake Creek Gap to get the railroad toward Atlanta. And that was what forced Johnston to evacuate all these fortifications up here at the northern end of Rocky Face Ridge. I think Sherman's problem there was that when he planned to do this, he assumed that McPherson would have 40,000 men. When McPherson actually began the march, he had 24,000 because some of them had not gotten back from furlough and Sherman would not wait a few days to let them show up. And McPherson had no cavalry, so he had to drop off infantry to guard his wagons and to patrol and do things cavalry should have done. And by the time he got through Snake Creek Gap, he was down to about 12, 10 to 12,000 men. And so consequently, when he found a few thousand Confederates defending the railroad, he fell back to the gap, and then Sherman moved the rest of his army down there. But there's a good book on this called Atlanta 1864, which is another one of those books that everybody should buy and read that explains all of this. Richard, one, one last question. One last question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, could you elaborate a little on that uh, the Cherokees that the uh, white Georgians were chasing out of town and why uh, the, the general didn't try to uh, prevent that? And a little bit on the 1864 uh, commanding order that would help the, uh, the slaves, black slaves at that time? The, the one at Savannah about the land? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, question, first part of the question was about the Cherokee 
northern Georgia, western South Carolina, western North Carolina, east Tennessee, was the area that the, Cher that the Indians that we call the Cherokee lived in. And they had signed several treaties with the United States that the United States government would give them this land and it would be theirs forever and ever and ever and ever. And then, unfortunately for them, in the 1820s, people discovered gold up there. And the white Georgians wanted to get that land to get the gold. And they, through the governor and the Georgia congressional delegation, they got the president, who was Andrew Jackson, to send Winfield Scott down there, General Winfield Scott, to round up the Cherokee and to move them out. They were going to move them from Georgia to what was then called the Indian Territory. It's Oklahoma today. And the, you know, it was in violation of the treaties, but the United States government has a long history of not honoring treaties that it made, especially with the various Indian tribes. So Scott came in with the army. They spent eight or nine years chasing Cherokee Indians in North Georgia, Western North Carolina, that whole area. They got probably 60, 65% of them, and marched them out across, essentially across Alabama, down the Tennessee River, and across Arkansas to Oklahoma. And it, it became known in the history of the Cherokee as the Trail of Tears. The National Park Service now has a Trail of Tears trail, Trail of Tears trail, that you can follow if you're interested in this with sites where the Indians were kept in a stockade or loaded on boats. And there were a number of Indians that were not caught, particularly in North Carolina, where they would get back up in the mountains, and they couldn't get them out. And that group is still there. It's known as the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. And it remained there. As I say, it's still there. They, uh, up around Cherokee, North Carolina, west of Asheville, put on a great drama every year called Unto These Hills. Some of you may have seen it. It's the drama of the Cherokee. I have not seen it in many years, but there was an article in some newspaper I read within the last couple of weeks about it. Uh, during the Civil War, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee joined the Confederate Army. And there was a unit called Thomas's Legion after William H. Thomas, who was a white man who was made a chief of the Cherokee Indians. And there's a good book on William H. Thomas called Cherokee, Confederate Colonel and Cherokee Chief, written by my good friend Stan Godbolt. And Thomas was a colonel in the Confederate Army. These people fought as a unit in the Confederate Army in Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee. But they're still there. I don't know if this is, you know, the whites wanted the gold and the Indians were moved out is the essential story. And you can, you can get into this uh, if, if you want to on that. The other part of your question was about Sherman and the blacks. In, Late 1864, when Sherman got to Savannah, he was followed by a large number of black slaves, runaway slaves, who ran away from the plantation and followed Sherman's army. Sherman didn't want them. Sherman was, as I said, he agreed with white Southerners on everything, and he was at least as much of an anti-black racist as was anybody in the Confederacy. He didn't want these blacks following. And in fact, on one occasion, his army took up a bridge that they had put down, a pontoon bridge, across this large stream and stranded several thousand blacks that were following these runaway slaves for the Confederates to, to capture and 
number of the slaves deliberately jumped into the river and couldn't swim and drown themselves rather than go back into slavery. It's a place called Ebenezer Creek, not too far uh, north, northwest of Savannah. Incidentally, the Union General, anybody know who the Union General was who was, took up the pontoons? Jefferson, Jefferson Davis. Davis. There's a Union general named Jefferson Davis. You can imagine how he was ridiculed in the Union Army. But when he got to Savannah, there were, there were the blacks in Savannah. Blacks from surrounding areas came in. A large number of them there. The question was what to do with them. And Sherman issued an order without any authority that they would be given 40 acres and a mule and settle on this land that belonged to the Confederates who were now in the Confederate Army. And ultimately, the federal government did not honor that provision, largely because it established a dangerous principle, confiscation of property. And a lot of the uh, northern people who supported the Union cause, and many who supported the abolition of slavery, did not want to establish the principle of confiscating property. Because if the government can confiscate land, in the South, what's keeping the government from confiscating railroads in Ohio or banks in Illinois? And so the government refused to honor that and instead began to lead into what became the systems of sharecropping and tenant farming that developed in the South in the late 19th century. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but there, there are a number of books on uh, Blacks in Georgia, there's one, I believe it's by a guy named Moore, M-O-H-R, on the threshold of freedom, about blacks in Georgia in the very late part of the Civil War. You can, you can get into that. Okay, well, thank you very much, folks. Richard? We're not done with you. How many ladies have said that? <laughs> We've had the good fortune of having Richard McMurray here in Chicago uh, presenting to our group. So in lieu of a medallion, we are giving a $150 donation in Richard's name to the Coastal Heritage Society outside of Savannah. And if you can tell us a little bit about that society. Actually, it's my IRA account <laughs> that I've got set up <laughs> under a phony name. Now this is a group that's formed down on the Georgia coast that works at the um, task of preserving historic sites, not just Civil War, but a number of historic sites up and down the Georgia coast, things like lighthouses and other things that are in danger. And the ones that I'm particularly concerned with that are big, big issues now are the sites in the Savannah area what is known as Old Fort Jackson. It is a second system fort. Construction of it actually began in the first decade of the 19th century. By the time of the Civil War, it was obsolete, but it was the headquarters of the Savannah defenses for the last three years of the war. It's a, it's not state-owned, it's a society-owned historical site about five or six miles downriver from Savannah. And they're trying to preserve the fort. Off the fort in the Savannah River is the Confederate gunboat Georgia, 
which was blown up when the Confederates evacuated Savannah in December 1864. If you go on out toward the Savannah Beach, you come to Fort Pulaski, which is the famous fort in that area. But Savannah, uh, Fort Jackson was the second system fort. There was a first system fort built in the 1790s. There was a dirt fort there, and Fort Jackson replaced it. And Fort Pulaski is a third system fort, famous because Robert E. Lee was very prominent in constructing it. I brought in a little copy of a brochure they put out. If you want to get this, and take a look at it. It'll tell you a bit about Fort Jackson. But if you get down to Savannah, you know, in addition to Fort Pulaski and all of that, if, if you're into forts, Savannah is a great place to go. You've got Fort Jackson built in the first decade of the 19th century, Fort Pulaski built roughly 1830 to 1860. You've got Fort McAllister at the mouth of the Ogeechee River, which was built in 1863-64, and you've got Fort Screven out on Tybee Island, which is what I call a fourth system fort built for the Spanish-American War. And all this is down there. Plus, they, they do a number of other historic sites that relate directly or indirectly to the Civil War. Historic homes, the old railroad facilities in Savannah. It, it's really a good group. And like a lot of these local groups, they're desperate for money. And I thank you very much. We thank you so much. See you next month. Hopefully, see you in three weeks on the tour. Have a good evening. Thank you.